1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 8 and 9. I'm going to read this in the Kenneth Weist version, because I think he really does a good job with this. Paul here is speaking to the Corinthians. It's the last chapter of the first, um, first book to the Corinthians. And he writes this, However, I remain at Ephesus until Pentecost. Remember those words. I remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. For a door is open to me, <clears throat> great and effectual, and there are many who are entrenched against me. And so I want to just talk about uh, three things here this morning and to really encourage us. Number one, the great door. What is the great door that is before us? That Paul is talking about what is the effectual door? What does that mean? What's an effectual door? Um, and then number three, how Paul is dealing with adversaries that are entrenched against him. And so let's look at the great door first of all. When Paul says that there's a great door, he says, I'm remaining in Ephesus. There's a great door opened here unto me, and it's an effectual door. And when he says, in a, when he talks about an open door, and I think when we talk about an open door, I think our minds can maybe go to thinking, okay, this is an opportunity, Right? There's an open door. I can go through this. It looks like there's no pushback, and I'm going to walk right through this door. But when Paul talks about a door, he's talking about a door in a little bit of a different way, and he's referring to it in the context of Acts chapter 19, verses 1 to 12. And so um, if you want, you can go to Acts 19, verses 1 to 12, but you don't have to. You can just listen to me, uh, read the verses, or refer to the verses. But when Paul talks about a great door, He's, talking, he's using the Greek word. And please don't be scared off when we use Greek words. Uh, we're not trying to boast or try to impress people with Greek words. But I, I like to, I'm a word person. I enjoy languages. I like doing research on what does a word really mean. And when you dig in a little bit <clears throat> in the Greek um, resources that are available, sometimes you can just find these beautiful riches that we didn't see before. And the word here that Paul uses for door a uh, great door is mega, a mega door. <laughs> we've heard of mega churches, right? We've heard of mega complexes. We've heard of mega cities. Here, Paul is talking about a mega door, a massive door, a huge, and sometimes this is referred to like even size. If you come to visit my house, you'll see that I have mega doors. <laughs> and they're so heavy that nobody can get in or out. And it's just, we got to get someone to come in and take a look at those doors and fix them because they get stuck. But they're just like these huge iron doors and and it's like these massive doors and paul said that god has opened a wide door here in ephesus and paul here is uh, referring to a wide door as an opportunity for ministry an opportunity to minister to people now the mission of the church is to build itself up to repair broken bones spiritually and to be equipped and to be sent out into our neighborhoods, into our, into our circles of where we live, where we work, where we play. And this great door Paul here is talking about is a door that's opened up to every one of us. It's a door of ministry. It's a door of opportunity in the sense that God is giving Paul uh, four things that he is doing with this great door. And let's look at these for, for a moment. Acts chapter 19, verses 1 to 12. These verses are referring to his ministry in Ephesus. And when you think about Ephesus, the ministry in Ephesus, and 
the Turners and I um, and Brittany were, were able to be actually in Ephesus in Turkey, and we got to see the city, and we got to see these places that Paul walked, and it was just fascinating. We saw where, um, where Paul was, was trying to go into the theater, but he couldn't go in. The disciples were keeping him back. It was just fascinating to see all of this. And Paul was doing four things of ministry in Ephesus. <clears throat> Number one, he's seeking. And that's, an, that's, um, that's what Paul is referring to. Uh, he's pressing into Ephesus. It says in verses 1 and 2, he's pressing into Ephesus. He's coming and he's passing in. And he's, he finds disciples. And this is really the first scope of Paul's ministry. He's finding disciples, wandering disciples. Wandering disciples that are not necessarily um, properly rooted in the gospel, in the finished work gospel. And he finds them, and he's asking, he's talking to them about, okay, we've been baptized. What is that baptism? And Paul here begins to fine-tune. And this is a wide-open door. Paul is finding disciples that are wandering. Sometimes you and I are going to find people that are really believers in Christ. And we found, we found people like that yesterday afternoon, just this, this couple that were in this place. As we discussed with them, I felt like we were, just, we were talking with just wandering sheep. And there are these people that are just looking for to get established in healthy understanding of what the gospel is seeking. And this is the ministry of the churches that we're seeking. Number two, preaching daily. Paul here for three months goes to the synagogue. And this is what Paul does. He just, you know, the synagogue is where, it's like, it's where the church, it's like where the Jews met. I mean, that was their church. I mean, we come to this place, we go to buildings to go to church. The Jews, they would gather and they would meet uh, in a synagogue. And there the law, the the, the, Greek, um, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is the Septuagint, would be opened and it would be read. And then Paul would go in there and he'd use that opportunity with the Greek translation and begin to preach. And he, he knew that every synagogue, everywhere he went, he would walk into a synagogue and he knew that there was a Bible there in Greek or in Hebrew or Aramaic and he could preach from there. And that was for place, that was a place where he could find, that was a place where he could go and he could interact, and he could preach, he could minister with people that were somewhat familiar with what he's talking about. And, and then Paul here is, he's doing this for three months. Think about that in Ephesus. And number three, this great door is not only just seeking and preaching, but it's also discipleship. Here, um, Paul here is, he finds 12 men, and he begins to disciple these men. And then Paul starts a school, school of Tyrannus. He starts this school, he starts this, and it's kind of like in the middle of this, it's kind of this random place. I, we were looking at Ephesus, and we we're trying to figure out which, what, what maybe the school looked like. What was his school? What building was it in? And, and it was very simple. And he's, he's discipling these 12 men. And um, he, it says he withdraws with these 12 men, and he begins to pour into them. And guess what happens with these men? These men go into Asia Minor, which is Turkey today, and they turn the whole place upside down. That's the power of 12 people. That's the power of 12 disciples. I think sometimes when we think of a great door that's open to us, we're thinking, okay, we need thousands of people. We need hundreds of people. We need massive. No, we just need a handful of people like we have in this room today that just have that, that know God, that are just walking in his finished work, that are being built up on a daily basis and going out and just changing your Asia Minor. And it's like, I think sometimes people think, well, I got to bring everybody to the church and then the pastor's going to preach a message, and there's going to be salvation there. That could happen. But I think somehow the church 
it has been put on the pastor. And I'm not trying to get away. From, I'm not trying to get out of anything here. I, I'm daily in ministry. I'm daily with meeting people, coffee appointments, and things like that. But I think sometimes think that people think that well, you know, I don't know what to say to a person. I got to bring them to church, and they're going to get saved. That could happen. But really, every one of us in this room, we are called by God to disciple people, whether that's family members, whether that's <clears throat> people that you're impacting at your work, maybe in your neighborhood. Um, yesterday, I was out on the street, and, and Caleb, my son, if you know my son, he's just very social, uh, just will run up to people, random people, and just start talking to them. And then I got to catch up to him and get talking with these people. And there was this couple there, and they go to a nearby church, and we just started talking. And we get, I had a chance to minister to them to really begin to pour and encourage them in their, in their marriage. And I think the Lord opens these doors for discipleship. But here, these men here are discipled in a, in a three-year period of time. They're being discipled. And Paul starts a school. And then these 12 men go out into Asia and turn the, turn the world upside down. That's, that's our prayer for Montgomery County. That's our prayer for Magnolia. God's brought us here. I feel like the Lord is, I mean, I, every time I meet, I, there's something different about Magnolia than, than the woodlands. And I think, I think, when I look at the woodlands, I feel like it's very saturated with churches. There's just a lot. Of, when we were there for a short time, I mean, we met a lot of Christians, but we didn't really meet much need. Magnolia, I think it's just a place. It's, it's, it's just a very unique place, and I think God's doing something here. And it's just wonderful to see God's heart for people as we talk to people here. And then the fourth thing here that Paul is doing, and by the way, we have, we have classes. We had a class last night. About Bible psychology, biblical psychology, about what the Bible says about how who we are in our soul, in our spirit, and how we can think with God. And then today, after our class, after our meeting here, we'll have some lunch. <clears throat> and then, if you'd like to stay, we're just going to talk about great men of the Bible. I'm going to be leading the class and be sharing about that. And that also happens at 9 a.m. in the morning. If you want to join us, um, because I feel that um, last night I was driving home. And I don't know <clears throat> about you, but like, this is just one of my just one of my favorite times. Like, I just drive home and I just have this peace and this flow with God because we were got with God's people, and we had just little really beautiful group of people here last night. And and I and and my prayer, my desire is <clears throat> is that we would go out into our neighborhoods, like I know some of you are already doing, <clears throat> just having a group of people that you're discipling that you're pouring into because this is the work of the church like it's not just the pastor that's doing it all it's like my job here as a church in Ephesians chapter 4 is to equip you to like help equip you okay and to get just like hey here are the tools go and do it you know go and do it and there's because there's just so much joy when we get to go out and we get to bear precious seed right and we come back rejoicing um you know I just got I got a message from Abraham and in 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 in, in Iraq, maybe Bill, you got it too. But you just said like he just led people to Christ. There was baptisms going on, and I just thought, man, this is great. You know, like we get to say we get to be a part of this guy's life, and we get to encourage him and build him up. And so here, Paul. And then the fourth thing about the great door is that those that are in the devil's bondage are set free, and we just see we see wondrous signs and miracles. Like, you know, we see God moving in great ways. You know what a wondrous sign and miracle today is. It's just somebody that was addicted to somebody, something is now, is now set free. That's a miracle. That's wondrous. That's incredible. When we talk about healing, we're talking about people that 
that have these internal things that are just so deep and just so hurtful that now they're set free from the bondage and the fears of that. And that's the beautiful work of God. That's the beautiful ministry of Jesus Christ in the church. It's so beautiful. Um, that's the great door. That's something that God has opened. And you know something? A great door can be in a place where it doesn't seem to be so great. You know what I'm saying? Like, like you know, um, like somebody may say, well, Texas is just so churched. Why do, we, why do we need to do anything there? You know, I had one pastor tell me, <clears throat> a big, big Baptist church, and he said to me, he said, he's a Christian, he said, don't think that because there's a lot of churches here that it's not needed. What we truly, really need here in Texas are pastors and just people that can just love and pastor people. And that's, what really tr- that's truly what is needed, shepherds, people that can, can build and encourage the flock. And so what we have here is so important, what we're doing. There's a great opportunity here in Magnolia. There's a great opportunity on your street. Sometimes when we look at very difficult situations, we need to see the door, the wide open the door, the mega door. We need to see that great door. Because I think sometimes the devil wants us to focus on something else, and that's what we're going to f- look at in a minute, the, the adversaries. Paul also says that the door is an effectual door. And you know something? I was reading this the other day and studying this just in my own personal walk. And I think as a pastor, I don't just study to preach, because I think if that was the only thing I did, then there would be such a, such a disconnect between, like, my life with God and, and a disconnect with my, you know, with, with like, okay, my relationship with, is, with the, is, is in the word and it's only to deal with people, okay? And that's, that's not the relationship that I want to have with the Bible. And as I was reading this, these words were just ministering to me so much. When, he, when Paul says here, an effectual door, that word effectual, it's kind of a funny word, isn't it? Like effectual, what's an effectual thing? It's not necessarily a word that we really use today. Another word that we could put in there is effective, it's a, it's a door that is effective. It's a door that, in the Greek, is, is the Greek word is, is the word that we get energy from, energies. And he says, like, this door is like an effectual, effective door that's open. And what does that mean? What does that mean by that word energies? It just, it's a word. And sometimes when we look at words, we want to see how they're used in the, in the period of time that the, the Bible was written. And so in some, in some documents or some uh, papyri, where they used to write in the ancient days, they used to write literature and they used to write things. Um, there were five different meanings, and this is really cool. I, I want us to really focus on this because when Paul uses the word uh, an effectual door, it, it, it means number one, um, it was used as a medical term for something that was tolerably strong. Okay, I, I, I guarantee you that you're going to see something in here you've never seen before, or your ties will be returned to. One, I'm just joking. 100% guarantee. A medical receipt has it tolerably strong. It means like, it means that like something that is so strong that it can resi- it can it can last the pressure against it. It's also used uh, as of a mill. You know, like these mills, these massive mills that are grinding grain down to um, these to powder. Up in New England, where I'm, where I grew up there are these old, old mills, like these old buildings, and the, it's like these huge, huge round stones that are like the size of this room, like literally there's one, one mill that is like has a stone that is so huge that it's rotating on two stones, and they're like grinding this, this grain down to powder, and it's powered by a, a river. And you know, when you look at a mill like that, you can see the power of, you can see the effect of how crushing it is 
and how powerful it is and the momentum. And this is the kind of door that God, that God has opened to Paul and that has opened to you and I. This is a door that is, that is something that is working. This is working. That there is a, There's an effect that's powerful. It's not just something that is, is scratching the surface. It's a ministry. It's, it's a work of God that is, that is, that is working in a, in a very powerful way. A third, a third way that it's used is describes <clears throat> land that's been broken up by a plow. You know, when you, when you walk by a field or if you've ever plowed fields, um, it's just a lot of work <clears throat> and it's just all fresh. It's just fresh soil and it's ready for seed. It's ready for something. And I think that the Lord has opened up for us in our personal lives, in the, in the, in the lives of people around us. There's this breaking up that's happening. And, and how do people's soil get broken up? Life breaks people's soil up. There's this breaking up. There's this disturbance. There is, no matter where you are, no matter if you're a believer or not, whatever, whatever your income is or is not, it's always going to be the same. Life is going to break up the soil. And then Paul here has a ministry with the seed of the finished work, the, the incorruptible seed that he talks about, that Peter talks about in his epistle. This is tilled and broken up land. The fourth, the fourth illustration here that is used in the New Testament, is of wrought iron. Wrought iron. Wrought is a word that we don't really use. W-R-O-U-G-H-T. What it means is, I, th- I would say, maybe a, a, a more modern word would be um, refined. A highly refined um, iron. Cast iron is an iron that has alloy in it. It has some slag. It can be bent. It can actually be broken. But wrought iron is something that if you make a fence from wrought iron, I mean, it's really expensive. It's something that doesn't easily break. It's just, it is, it is highly refined. This is what God has opened. This is the door that God has opened. It's something that has been tested. It's, an, it's, it's a ministry that you and I have that is, that is this is not something weak and it's not something that's going to easily fall apart. And then he says, um, then he uses the word, um, the fifth illustration, powerful. And he uses this word, Paul uses this in Philemon uh, 1, verse 6, in the, in the terms of communication. And he uses, the writer of Hebrews writes in Hebrews 4, verse 12, he talks about this effectual word. The word of God is effectual. And another way to describe that is powerful. This is powerful. You know what powerful ministry is? It may not be that there's this huge, massive response. When you share the gospel with someone or when you're counseling someone or when you're just leading your family or you're leading uh, your personal life, it may not sometimes feel very powerful. We were talking about this last night, is that our emotions are so deceptive because our emotions are part of our soul. And our soul is that part of us that, can, that is self-aware, that's self-conscious, that um, is only aware of its own preferences. It's that part of us that is impressed, that it's that impressionable part of us. Um, the soul is a part, is, a, is that place where people feel, and they, and they, and there's also that thought process that's also happening. The spirit of a man is that that part of us is that part of us that can know. It's that part where conviction resides. Uh, it's that part of us that can discern. It's that part of us that has awareness of God's presence and of God's work and God's word. And when we read his word, his spirit is speaking to our spirit. The emotions reside in the soul. 
And I think that it's so easy that if we don't understand the kind of door that God has given us in our, in our, in our living, in our walking as a church, and in our ministry, uh, that it'd be so easy for us to begin to analyze what we do on a soulish level. Okay? And soulish Christianity is, 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 is just so dangerous because when, when, the, when, when John writes First John, he says, you have, no, you have no need for any man to teach you. I think that if you look at that verse really clearly, it's a word that's not pointing to a physical man, and it's not pointing really to a spiritual man. It's pointing to a soulish person, a person who is just in it for themselves or just aware of himself or is just living in his personal preferences of what he will and what he will not do. That we don't need that kind of teaching. We don't need that kind of person in our life that's, that, is, that is kind of teaching, and, 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 and it's really about them. And, and we can see that so often happening. The part of us, that spirit, that part of us is that part of us that knows. You know something? When you and I mix faith with the word that we read, that resides in our spirit. And 20 years down the road, you may not even think about that verse or think about that conversation you had with someone or that time of prayer, and it'll come back as clear as day because it's residing in your spirit. Your spirit doesn't forget anything. Our soul may forget stuff, you know? We may forget roads, and we may forget to turn on the exit, the right exit, but in our spirit, things that we learn from God are there for eternity. It's there forever. When God says something, he says it once, and it's there forever in our soul. And that's, and by the way, when we get to heaven, we're going to be living in the house of our spirit, that, that, you know, that house that has been built in, in John chapter 14, this house that God has built all the days of our physical life. He's building something, and that's a spiritual house in John 14. And Paul says to the Corinthians, it's, it's a house that's made, not made with hands. And guess what? You and I are, are preparing the house that we're going to live in for, for eternity. That is, that is like building ourselves up and, and, and understanding how God thinks about us. And this is the opportunity. This is the powerful opportunity. This is the powerful door. Paul is looking at all of that. And maybe you and I can maybe look at our life. And we don't see such great and effectual doors in front of us. Um, but if you and I look at it from the perspective of, I have an opportunity here to invest, to pour, into, pour Christ into this situation. I have an opportunity to speak truth. Because Paul here makes another point, and I want us to back up to um, verse 8 in, this, in, this, in the text that we're reading. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 8. And there's something very unique and easily missed here. But God just brought my attention to it. And as I was reading through this, Paul says, but I shall remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. Okay. Remember Acts 19. Okay. Acts 19, some really crazy stuff is happening. There is, there's four major things that are happening in Ephesus that would, would make any of us in this room probably just run for our lives and just say, I'm, I quit. I'm, I'm quitting the ministry. I'm not in this. I'm not going to do this. I'm not interested in serving God. I'm not interested in walking with God. I'm not interested in standing for God. And Paul here faces four things that I think that every one of us, you and I face at some point in our life. And I want to look at this from a practical point of view. <clears throat> so Paul here says, I'm going to remain here. I'm remaining in Ephesus. The word that he uses here is not just like, okay, I'm going to hang out here. I'm going to stay. I got a hotel room. But this is a room. This means, this is, <clears throat> this means, this is the, 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 the Greek word meno, which means to just to stay and abide. But that's not the word that he uses here. He uses like, he adds something to it. He adds a prefix. And he adds his prefix, E-P-I, which is epi. And, and it just means whenever a person 
see, whenever a word is used in the Greek with epi on the front of it, it just means it's on steroids. It just means like, this is not just this, but this is like, this is huge. This is massive. This is the full, this is the full experience, the full expression of this activity. And Paul's saying, I'm staying here and I'm, I'm digging in. I'm like epimeno. I'm staying in here. I'm, I'm like, I'm like, I'm not going anywhere. I'm digging in. Because he says here, he goes, I shall remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. And I, you know, he's talking about a season here. But what does the Pentecost mean for Paul at that time? It means that's the time when the Holy Spirit's poured out and when the gospel's being preached and the great work and the church is born. Paul's like saying, I'm staying here until God's work is completed and something happens and a church is born. I'm staying in Ephesus. I think that it'd be easy for us to stay places that are comfortable. Like, I love living in Texas. You know, I hope I never have to, I, I don't plan to move away. I love it here. I love living here. I love the state. Um, I just love what God is doing in this area. And when I think about Texas, and people ask us this all the time, like, are you planning to stay? And, and like, I don't have any plans. My wife and I don't have any plans to move anywhere. We just love being here. Paul's saying, I'm here, epimeno. And then Paul says, he says, I'm staying here. And he's, I, you know, I can't, I'm just kind of, you know, I can't say thus is the Lord, but I think Paul's thinking in his mind, you know, Pentecost is coming. I really want to see God do something here. I want to see the fruition of the Holy Spirit being poured out. I want to see disciples made. I want to see the gospel preached. I want to see these four things that, that um, I detect that God has opened us here, uh, opened for us here in Ephesus. And then here's the practical point I want to get to. Paul says, and this is the third and the last point, there are many adversaries. There's many adversaries. You ever feel like there's this great thing going on and then there's like all this pushback, just this weirdness in the air, in the atmosphere, uh, people, words that people say, things, emotions that you're feeling. You ever have like these really wacky emotions like, you know, like, you know, and, 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 and you feel like there's this, there's this pushback. And, and Paul uses here, a structure. He says that are, there are many that are lying opposed to me. And it's like, the picture is, it's like you have the front line where trenches have been dug very deep. And I remember, you know, looking at, I remember looking at uh, when we lived in Ukraine, some of the places where the front lines were, and there were, di- there were, there were ditches that were like 10 feet deep. There were like bathrooms. There were like places where people were sleeping. These people were not going anywhere. Wow. This was the front line. And this is what, and Paul said, Many are lined up against me. You know, many are lined up against me. And Paul says here, he says there's four, and he, and he mentions four things. He, um, a couple of them are in Acts 19. And then in, in when he's talking to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, he's mentioning two other, two other characteristics, characteristics. And I want to look at these with us. And I want us to um, have a practical application about how, these can, how, this, can be, how this can relate to us and what, what do we do when we have this, this adversarial pushback? And sometimes, you know what? Sometimes the devil will attack, and we don't even recognize it's the devil. Because if we're living in our soul, if we're living in self-preference, if we're not taking up a daily cross, we're living in our soul. And we're just like, we're like, we're not, because discernment doesn't happen in the soul. I just feel. I just have emotions. And emotions can't think. And, and there's, four, there's four, four circumstances here that Paul relates to that he does not make a major decision in. And I'm going to close with this. Four circumstances that you and I should never make a major decision in. Okay? When you're in one of these circumstances or other circumstances, 
Don't make any big decisions. Just wait. Wait till the, wait till the fog clears. Wait till the smoke clears. Wait till it gets quiet. And then make a decision from the point of view like Ephesians chapter, you know, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 8. I'm remaining here. I'm here. I'm not going to go anywhere until God just speaks really clearly to me. And number one, Paul here relates to, in verses 13 to the end of the chapter of Acts 19, he's talking about <clears throat> a, misrep- a misrepresentation. Paul here is probably experiencing misrepresentation when there are the seven sons of Sceva who are ignorantly and unequipped to enter into the arena of demonic activity and they themselves are overcome. And think about that scenario, okay? Here's Paul preaching. Everybody knows about Paul. He's in the synagogues. Everybody knows his teaching. He's, he's a name that's, he's, you know, he's getting out there. He's impacting businesses big time. And then this thing happens with these seven sons of Sceva and they go out and they try to cast out demons, you know, in Paul's name or, you know, and they're trying to do it not even understanding what spiritual warfare is. And then they get overcome. People can come to Paul and say, Paul, are these, are these guys with you? Like, you know, like, what are you doing? And, it, and, and for Paul, Paul here is experiencing a sense of misrepresentation. Like, like, hey, are they from your church? Like, what the heck? You know, what are they doing? And, and, and is that, are, are they related to you? And, and what are you teaching them? And what is this way that's being preached in, in Acts 19? And, and Paul has this opportunity, has this situation where he, he feels that he could be misrepresented. When, you're, when, when you are walking with God and you're doing, you're doing his will and you're walking with him, misrepresentation is going to happen. It's just going to happen. People are going to misunderstand you. They're going to misunderstand what you're doing. They're going to, they're going to tag people that have nothing to do with, with God's way, and they're going to tag them with you. And you're going to, oh, you're one of those fanatical people. Are you one of these people that like pray all the time or read your Bible all the time? You're kind of one of those crazy people that, you know, that, that hate the government or something like that. Misrepresentation. And when we have this experience, when we feel mis- misrepresented, don't, like, just don't, don't run, don't move, don't leave your place, stand your ground, and just epimeno, remain. Remain in Ephesus, because there's a door open there. I think if Paul ran, I think if Paul left Ephesus when it got really hot, that there, would there be a book of Ephesians for us to read today? Would there be a great work of God? Would there be the iron that God puts in, in Paul's soul? I don't think so. Number two, those with influence pursue us. Here, Demetrius leads a conspiracy. Demetrius gathers all these other silversmiths and, and individuals that make money off of these idols of Diana. And he gets them together and he says, I'm a, you know, you can see what damage and uh, problems here that, that are being created by this Paul and his preaching. And we have to like do something. We have to get him. He's impacting our business. And see, when you have people that have money, when you have people that have influence, and they come after you. And, and like, you're, I don't know if this ever have, have, has happened to you. Maybe even, like, governmental entities. Remember when we lived in Ukraine, we had, we had you know, the government just, you know, we would have, we'd organize an event, like this big event. We'd rent, like, the, 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 the theater in the center of the city. And then we found out, like, the guy, you know, hours before the event, we had... All these people, we had this music, we had all this stuff lined up. It's going to be an awesome rally. And then we, we get a phone call from the, the director of the, of the um, Philharmonic Hall. He says, um, he goes, I, we can't do this tonight. I said, why? What happened? He goes, well, I just can't do it. 
And then I went and met with him. I said, what, what happened here? And he goes, well, I got a phone call from a certain uh, very influential religious group here in the Ukraine that, that you guys are, you can't rent, to, we can't rent things to you guys because you're like, you're a sect. You know, like Protestants are a sect. This is an Orthodox country. And I just remember like times like that where, where we would have these powerful individuals that would make decisions that would, we'd wind up on the street um, and this leads here, this leads Paul, in Acts 19, it leads to Paul being in the middle of a riot. Uh, I remember when we lived in Poland in the mid-80s, late-80s, and I remember walking to church, I had the guitar with me, uh, I, had, I had my Bible, my notebook, and I, had like, I was dressed up, and I'm walking from the streetcar across the, there was this, this plantation that, like this, they called it like this botanical garden that went around the city, and as I'm walking through, there is this riot. I can hear down the street. Um, I can hear this yelling and the shouting and the screaming. And I look down the street, and right in front of the Russian embassy, uh, there was a group of, there's a massive group of people, and they had lifted up, and they had tipped over a police car. And they were shouting, and they were screaming. And I'm walking, I'm like, I just got to get to the meeting where I'm going. I can't run into this crowd. And as I'm walking, right behind me comes this, this crowd of university students that are running for their lives. They're just running, and right behind them are these, what was called at the time in Poland, the militia, or the military police. And they had the riot gear on, they had bats in their hands, they had guns. And like before I knew it, I'm like, I'm in the middle of this, and the police are beating students, and like really hurting people. And it was just mass chaos, tear gas was everywhere. And I, and I just, I'll never forget the, the environment, the, the, the atmosphere of, of, of what that felt like to be in mass chaos. I've never experienced anywhere else, but being in this, being in a riot, like Paul was in Acts 19, there is this, <clears throat> there's this crazy atmosphere. Uh, the third thing here that, that the third adversary, so like in this cir- circumstance, don't, like let's not, let's not put, let's not get pushed back. Let's not be pushed out. Like in your convictions, don't change your convictions. If just plant, be, be where God has planted you and, and don't be moved. Um, Paul here talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 32. This is the third adversary that Paul's talking about. 1 Corinthians 13, uh, 15, excuse me, verse 32. Paul deals with men that he refers to as wild beasts in Ephesus. And he's like, I got to deal with these wild beasts. These are men that are just so wild. They're brutal. And they, they, and, and they are just stubborn people. Um, that's an adversary. And then the fourth adversary here Paul's talking about is, is in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. He's talking about, he said, and I'm going to read this to you. This is in the New American Standard Version. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively. Listen to that. We were, and he's talking about Acts 19. He's talking about his time in Ephesus. We were burdened excessively. Wow. Beyond our strength. You ever been in, in a place of ministry or just in a place where God's put you and just you have no strength? You're just done. I'm done. So that we, were dis- that we despaired even of life. He was, he was in physical danger. He, he was worried for his physical well-being. And he said, indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves. Why? Why? So that we would not trust in ourselves. And I want to close with this. Is that... The whole idea of distractions and difficulties in your life is that we would not trust in ourselves. And I think it's, we don't realize it, but 
until there's affliction, until there's difficulties, we don't realize how much we're trusting in our own wisdom, in our own understanding, and what worked before, and, and, and what does God want to do now. These are, this is an adversary where, where, um, where uh, and I think that maybe we could even put another adversary in there, our own flesh, that's pushing back against God's will in your life. Like, I don't want to do that. Like, I don't think I should do this, or I don't think I, you know, and, and just never, never take, never take a, a, an account of what you're doing with God from the natural perspective. Like, if you're discouraged, that's not a good time to be trying to assess your life. Uh, if, you're, if you're having a hard time or you feel like you're being, you have an adversary breathing down your neck, it's not a great time to assess where you're at. Uh, should I do something? Should I be pushed out? And so, so um, Paul is writing to the Corinthians. He says, all of this has happened to me so that we would not trust in ourselves. And that's hardship. That's hardship. That's, that, all the difficulties that are going on in our life is that, that you and I would understand, I don't trust myself. As a pastor, I'm not trusting myself. I'm only trusting God. I'm trusting God to keep me. I'm trusting God to lead me. I'm trusting God to walk with me. I'm trusting God to encourage me. I'm trusting God to, to walk us through. And this, um, this whole thing that we would not trust in ourselves. And I think there's just great freedom. Like, you know what, God, I don't know. And I like this. There's an old hymn. And the words, um, words kind of go like this. As a part of it goes like this. Um, I'm not skilled to understand what God has willed, what God has planned. I and mean, sometimes I just think about that. Like, God, I don't know what you're doing. I'm not skilled to understand that. And you know what? It's okay. Because what's more powerful, doing what we know that we're confident about or walking by faith when there's no emotions? We said this yesterday that emotions, if you have an emotional affirmation in what you're doing, praise the Lord, that's great. But sometimes we don't have that emotional affirmation. Sometimes it's just, you know what, I'm doing this because I know this is right. I'm just doing this because I know this is right. I'm walking, I'm walking in obedience. I don't see fruit, maybe. I don't see answers to prayer. Actually, I see things get worse. You know, my dad got saved. And then, like, my whole family, when we were middle-class Americans, had a great life. And then my dad got saved, and just all hell broke loose in the whole family. I mean, there's so much warfare that came on us, and we didn't even know what was going on. When we don't have that emotional affirmation, we need to look. We need to look at those things that are not seen, and just say, you know what, I'm on the right path. I said this to our Ukrainians back in, this, in Ukraine this week. I said, you know, when you're discouraged and when you're just tired of the pushback, when you're tired of the warfare, just go back to the time where you remember meeting God in the desert at that burning bush, that burning bush, that moment when God spoke to you and said, you know what. I'm going to put a fire in you, and you're not going to be consumed. You know, just remember that. Just to, just to go back to that time. You know, I remember when God knocked me off of my high horse on the way to Damascus, and I was blinded until a local pastor that nobody ever heard prayed over me, and my eyes were open. You know, Because when we, when, we, when we think like that, we get our bearings back. We get our compass get straight, and we start walking in a great door. Don't miss God's great door for your life. Don't miss it. Don't walk away from things that God's just doing great things in your heart. Don't get discouraged. If you get discouraged, pour your heart out to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm discouraged. I don't know what's going on. And, and don't cast, don't, don't throw in the towel because uh, do not be weary, it says in Galatians chapter 6 in well-doing. Don't get weary because I think it's just, just a few more inches down the road and there's that big answer to prayer that's coming. 
There's that big clarity that's coming. There's that, there's that, there's that word and season that comes. There's that person who, who comes alongside of us and encourages us. There's that beautiful thing that happens that we see God. Don't, and you know something? If you're single, don't throw away your, your convictions. I mean, yeah, don't throw away your convictions about your physical body. Don't give in to the world's push, you know, the adversaries that come at, that come at you and, and, and accuse you and push you and make you feel that you're isolated. Because you know what? Purity is something that is so beautiful and it's so awesome. And guess what? People will respect you to the measure that you respect yourself in the Lord. Amen? Amen. So let's just close in prayer. And as we do, um, we're going to have communion. As we pray, maybe we can have Robert and... Um, Tony, maybe just hand out the, um, the, the elements for communion, okay? Father, we ask you, God, that you would get these words, Lord, that you would impress them on our hearts, God. Lord, when we feel the pressure to be moved from our place, we feel the, the pressure to change, we feel that misrepresentation or the influ- people of great influence or those moments where we're just overcome by emotion or even a, even a question, am I physically safe or emotionally safe in this situation? Lord, that we would just, like Paul did, tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost. Just stay, don't quit. Wait until God pours out an answer. Paul is saying, I'm going to stay in Ephesus because of the trouble. I need to stay. And so, Lord, we just want to pray that today, God, if we're in a place today where we feel like we're going to be moved or discouraged, Lord, that we just learn how to tarry, as in Acts chapter 2, that says that they tarried in Jerusalem. They waited in prayer. They waited in unity. They waited in, they continued in the apostles' doctrine. They met daily. God, we just thank you for this, each person that's here today and and uh, I just want to take um, the bread. And I think some of the most beautiful times in our life as a Christian are those times when it was really tough, but we stayed the course. And we walk away with just these beautiful treasures in our heart. Like, wow, I remember when God showed up and it was so hard. And, and Jesus here is is with his disciples and he's, he's in the midst of just like like it's, it's about to get bad it's really about to get bad and Jesus here is in John 15 he's talking about here's Judas that betrays him and Jesus right after it's interesting right after Judas betrays Christ you got a red letter you got red, red, red letters in your you just see all the, all the red starts right after Judas leaves all Jesus starts talking about you know, kingdom secrets, kingdom mysteries, kingdom incredible stuff that he's going to do with a new church that's going to start in Acts chapter 2. And he's, he's sharing communion. I think that when we're in difficulty, when we sense the adversary, when we sense the, the, the danger, uh, if we can get quiet and just commune with Jesus, and we can sense that, you know, when it got hard for him, he stayed the course because it says that he had the hope that was set before him, <clears throat> and he endured the contradictions of sinners and the same with us today. We take this bread <clears throat> because we know that we are his joy and his rejoicing and his body was broken for us. So let's take this in remembrance of him.
Jesus, when we get to the Bema seat, that Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ for the believer, we're going to look at that seat and we're going to see a man that we know. We're going to see a friend. We're going to see an advocate. We're going to see a savior. We're going to see a man who never left us, never forsook us. We're going to see the man that was walking with us on the road to Emmaus when we were walking in the opposite direction that we should be walking in. He shows up and patiently comes alongside us and and counsels us. We're going to see that man, and that's going to be so beautiful. We're not going to see an angel or or a scary beast that we read about in the book of Revelations, but we're going to see a man, a glorified man, who has cruci- that has nails in his hands and and a, and a pierced side. And Jesus said that same night. He said, "This is my blood. This is the cup of the new covenant that I'm making with you. This is my blood, which is shed for you." And so we rejoice in that God because sometimes we waver, sometimes we fail, sometimes we fall down, sometimes we quit, sometimes we're walking in the wrong direction, and and then we remember. But the blood is still effectual. It still, it still is good for us today. So Jesus said, take this and drink ye all of it. Father, we thank you for this time together. Yes. Pray that you would bless now as we close and enjoy some fellowship and some food. In Jesus' name, amen.